0: Mana maha Wahanga ko Today in Te Ahika, we're going to feature a dramatised documentary produced here at Radio New Zealand as part of an educational series. It's about Parihaka. A story well known to Māori, but with a focus on the political manoeuvrings of the time. And it draws on contemporary Pākehā writing and the record of parliamentary debates, rather than Māori sources, to outline events. So, you'll hear the words used by members of Parliament, both Māori and Pākehā, and by a 19th century British historian who was taken to court by a Cabinet Minister because of his writings. 140 years ago, in the 1870s, Parihaka was described as the most populous and prosperous Māori settlement, not just in Taranaki but in New Zealand, The centre of an autonomous movement for peace and development, the base of Te Piti and Tōhukākahi. but it had enemies among land-hungry colonists, and on the 5th of November 1881, a government force invaded Parihaka. Here is Aurere Tanga Parihaka, written and narrated by Adrian Smith.
1: It is necessary to explain how the government invaded peaceful homes, trampled over tilled fields, destroyed stores of food, hauled away women and children, imprisoned their beloved chief and denied him a trial.
2: This was written in 1888 by the historian George Rusden. Rusden was appalled at how land was being grabbed from its Maori owners, either by trickery or direct confrontation. Through his book O Tanga, he tried to make people aware of what was happening. He described the raid on Pariaca, the attack on Te Witi and his people. He also told the full story of Parliament's attempt to cover up the injustice of the raid. There was opposition to it. Some parliamentarians felt that the Pariaca raid went against the principles of British justice, the principles behind the Treaty of Waitangi. But their cries of outrage were not strong enough to halt events. They were up against the greater number of parliamentarians who held the idea that uncultivated land was waste and that the Māori were savages who must be brought to heel. The treatment of Te Witi and his followers and the legislation which followed the Pariaka raid is one factor determining today's relationship between Māori and Pākehā.
3: I have heard a great deal about Magna Carta and the Bill of Rights and all that. That may be good, but Magna Carta and the Bill of Rights imply something more than mere privilege. They imply duty also. I say the same about this Treaty of Waitangi, which I hope will in future be relegated to the waste paper basket, which is about the only place it ought to be seen in.
2: Yet the details of this piece of our history are surprisingly little known. We owe the following insights to George Rusden, who had the wit to document at the time what was going on in the civilized capital of Wellington. He takes up the story.
1: How it came to pass that in 1881 a notable tragedy was enacted. In his proclamation of the 2nd of September, 1865, after the Taranaki War, the governor had declared that no land of any loyal inhabitant
4: within the district will be taken, except such as might be needed for security of the country, and compensation will be given for all land so taken.
2: The land around pariyaka which had originally belonged to Tawiti's people, had not been confiscated. So after the fighting ceased in 1865, they moved back, And established a prosperous settlement. says i feel the omen in my nostrils perhaps i am to be trodden underfoot in 1877 the government decided to survey the lands for sale completely ignoring the fact that the people who lived there had every right to do so the government maintained that the land had been confiscated during the war to get the case taken to court in order to prove beyond any doubt that they did own their land Tewiti's people ploughed up the area that was being surveyed. They were arrested, but they went quietly, for Tewiti had said,
5: Go, put your hands to the plough. Look not backwards. If any come with guns and swords, be not afraid. If they smite you, smite not in return. If they rend you, be not discouraged.
1: When Parliament assembled in 1879, after the first of the Pariaka arrests, two bills were presented to try and cover up the fiasco that had already taken place. One allowed the governor to fix the date and trial of certain Maori prisoners. This meant their trial could be delayed, perhaps indefinitely. The other, called a peace preservation bill, allowed the government to order the Maoris to withdraw from their homes, to imprison those who did not, and to give them sentences of hard labour. It denied them bail, it denied them trial without an order from the Governor, and it specially suspended the Habeas Corpus Act. Both
2: bills were in total opposition to the concept of British justice, which is based on the idea that people cannot be imprisoned without just cause, and that this cause must be proved before a magistrate within 48 hours of the person's arrest. This is the concept of Habeas Corpus. Yet the first bill was passed by both the lower and the upper house. But fortunately, the second bill was opposed. Dylan Bell and Waterhouse declaring...
4: We are asked to pass an act such as no legislature in the world, I believe, has ever been asked to pass. We are not only to create a new offence, but to enact that a native who commits that offence is not bailable. Sir, I can hardly trust myself to speak upon such a measure. I say you are absolutely mad to think of proposing an act like this. I warn you that so surely as you are guilty of a reversal of the promises of the Crown passing such an act as this, so surely will you have bloodshed the moment you try to enforce it. I will not say, as members of the other House have said, that I shall wash my hands of it, but I shall record my protest against so utterly shameless an act. This bill is the most
6: monstrous proposal that was ever submitted to the legislature of any country. Hundreds, even thousands of people occupying a large tract of country under the assurance conveyed by a proclamation of the governor will be liable to a year's imprisonment. I would sooner submit to have my right arm cut off than be a party to it.
2: In their opposition, Dylan Bell and Waterhouse were expressing a belief in more than the rule of law, for law can be changed at the whim of Parliament. They were expressing a belief in the idea of justice. Their words did not fall on deaf ears. This time, the bill was rejected by 16 votes to 6, but it would return later, in a slightly altered form. Meanwhile, the ploughing at Pariaka had continued, and so had the arrests. So in August, several Maori chiefs and parliamentarians, again expressing a belief in the justice of the British courts, sent a message to Te asking him to stop ploughing and to allow the case to be settled by the Supreme Court, which left him the right to appeal if the case went against him. So at the end of August, the ploughing stopped. But as Rusden bitterly remarks...
1: If there had been a desire to test the legal position of the government and of the Maoris, no difficulty was to be apprehended. But some persons prefer making new laws to obeying those which exist.
2: There were elections in December 1879 and a new government came into power. This government had no scruples about passing legislation to delay the trial of the Parihaka prisoners. It introduced the Confiscated Laws Inquiry and Maori Prisoners Trial Bill. At this stage, the prisoners had been held for seven months without trial, which British Justice did not allow. Though this next bill met with some opposition in the House...
3: The bill takes away all the rights held dear by British subjects. It was passed.
2: What Toll had said was true. But as Rusden again bitterly comments...
1: As that was the object of the bill, his protest was in vain.
2: The bill meant the government could keep the Pariaka Maoris in prison indefinitely, without trial. Once again, contrary to the Habeas Corpus Act. It did have one good feature it allowed commissioners to be appointed to conduct an inquiry into land ownership. Sir William Fox and Sir Francis Dillon Bell were appointed. They already had some idea of the legal position of the lands, for in December, one of the commissioners, Sir Francis Dillon Bell, said in Parliament,
4: It is untrue to say that the whole of the land between the White Totara and the White Cliffs has been confiscated. It never has been confiscated. The proclamation bearing the signatures of Sir George Grey as governor and of Mr Fitzgerald as native minister confiscates the land of those in rebellion. But it not only does not confiscate the land of those who remain loyal, it conserves their rights and makes the express promise to them that their land shall not be taken. That is an undeniable fact, and it is equally true that none of the promises has been kept. They remain to this day in the same state in which they were in 1865, and the natives who were at that time in loyal obedience to the crown and have never been in rebellion since have never had their land given to them yet.
2: In February, the commissioners announced that the government would fulfil its promises and the land reserves would be set aside for the Maori. But they did not say that the Maori could keep all the land they held at the time, nor would they hear questions on the legality of the confiscations. So the question of who owned the surveyed land would not be settled by a court of law. The Maori owners had been cheated. And in January, John Bryce had taken a large armed force to Taranaki, to the very gates of Pariaka. Yet in March, Tiwiti still told his people to be peaceable.
5: I speak of the bayonet that has glittered this day in my face. I talk of the flash of the gun before my eyes, and the bayonet pointed at my heart. Who can deny it? Hetewi Māori, itteiwi Pākehā. Can you say that I am wrong? Although some of you, in the darkness of your hearts, seeing your land taken from you, might wish to take up arms and kill the aggressors, I say to you, it must not be. I do not want war. But the Pākehā want war. The flashes of the guns have singed our eyelashes and they say they do not want war. Referring to me, what do they say? That I am a fanatic, a fool and a madman, but I am neither. The land is yours, but what I have seen lately is enough to turn the brains within my head into the brains of a fanatic. Still, we must cause no more trouble to come upon the land by any action of our own.
2: But while Tehuiti was counselling peace and restraint, back in Wellington the government was planning more legislation.
1: On July the 15th, the Native Ministers' Māori Prisoners' Bill, 1880, was introduced.
2: It was a farce to call it a prisoner's bill, as Native Minister John Bryce himself admitted.
7: The truth is, it is a mere farce to talk of trying these prisoners for the offences with which they are charged. If they are convicted, in all probability they will not get more than 24 hours' imprisonment, if so much, in addition to the term of imprisonment they have already served. Now, in this bill, we drop that provision in regard to the trial altogether. We consider that to be a mere sham. And what we ask for now is that the government shall have the power to say whether these men are to be detained in captivity or to be released.
2: In other words, the imprisonment without trial, contrary to the Habeas Corpus Act, was to be continued. And heaping cruelty on injustice, the prisoners were not only kept without trial, but imprisoned in Dunedin, which has a much colder climate than they were used to. The Maori members of Parliament were distressed by the prisoners' treatment. They asked why the prisoners were not tried, and if the government would hold itself responsible if any of them died. To their question, the Attorney General callously replied,
4: It has been thought inexpedient to try the prisoners, and I am not aware that if any of the natives dies, any responsibility will rest upon the government or anybody else.
2: In fact, many people thought they had been sent to Dunedin with that in mind. Tafai voiced that fear when he said,
8: These men were taken from this island where the climate is warm to the other island where the climate is severe. And I cannot help thinking that they must have been taken there in order they might be got rid of and that they might perish there.
2: Fortunately for Pākehā reputations, the bill created an uproar in the House. Tomuana Stuart, Tafai, Montgomery, Reeves, Sir George Gray and Major Harris all spoke out firmly against it.
8: Proposed imprisonment is the worst way of killing anybody. It's making perfect slaves of these men. I denounce this loss of the
3: right to a writ of habeas corpus. If this government passes this bill which will place some of Her Majesty's subjects outside the pale of the law It will commit an act of great injustice. I consider the measure one of the most iniquitous bills ever discussed in any British
6: colony. It is a bill that would be scouted out of any civilized community. It is a disgrace to the colony to pass such a bill as this.
4: The bill is a cruel measure and an unnecessary measure. It violates almost every principle of the law.
3: I think the bill's the most wanton piece of cruelty that ever was proposed in any part of the country.
2: And the cruelty of imprisonment without trial did not fall only on those imprisoned, as Tafai exclaimed.
8: During the imprisonment of my people, five of their children, who might not have perished unless deprived of their parents' care, have died. The prisoners should be tried, and if they are found innocent, they should be taken back to the land.
2: But in spite of the uproar, the bill was passed by 50 votes to 34. So, unless the governor gave his approval, no court, judge or justice or any other person could free one of the prisoners or release him on bail. And the governor was unlikely to give his approval unless the native minister agreed, which he was unlikely to do. The prisoners were political prisoners, denied all their rights and treated as badly as any prisoners are treated by totalitarian regimes today. And still the government did not stop. The original arrests were illegal, so John Bryce introduced a native prisoner's detention bill to legitimise his actions.
7: I have thought it necessary to make some arrests, and might have to continue making more arrests in the same way. The prisoners taken or to be taken in this manner are to be deemed to have been and to be detained under the provisions of the previous Maori Prisoners Act.
2: Again, the bill caused an outcry in Parliament.
7: I do not think there is any
9: other free country in the world where a Minister of the Crown can announce that he has arrested individuals unlawfully and without any charge of crime being brought against them. The
7: government accepts the fullest responsibility and it must be evident that we have no intention of shrinking from responsibility. Responsibility, because we have already taken these prisoners without any form of law.
3: The West Coast Commissioners and their report acknowledge that the land belongs to the natives. It's very hard that the government should entrap the natives and then pass a law to justify their action. This is a shameful act which they have been guilty of.
4: Under this bill, women and children may be arrested without any charge being made. This measure will be a constant reproach to the Assembly of New Zealand if it is passed in its present form. It is too much to ask that the lives of many women, children, and men should be dependent on the will of one man. I will still ask the honorable member to consider what he is doing. I ask him not to compel the House to pass a bill which must reflect disgrace upon it.
2: But the government was unrepentant.
7: I can only say now that I feel ashamed of the action of the opposition on this occasion.
2: The bill was passed, but the government was not finished. Having denied the Maori prisoners a trial and having legalised its illegitimate arrests, it introduced what it euphemistically called a West Coast Settlement Bill. Under this bill all civil rights were done away with completely.
4: Any orders which might seem necessary or fit to preserve the public peace might be given, and offenders or suspected persons might be arrested without warrants.
2: In other words, a state of emergency. It too was vigorously opposed by members with any sense of common justice, but in spite of such opposition, it was passed. MacAndrew said of the bill,
9: I believe the future historian of New Zealand will refer to the bill as something quite as bad as anything that ever took place in the worst times of the Star Chamber. I enter my protest against the bill as being unworthy of Englishmen and free men.
2: MacAndrew was referring back to the time when the King was law and could imprison or release a person at his pleasure. Bryce was unmoved by these charges. He replied,
7: I have always taken up the position that these Maoris do not intend to provoke hostilities, but if these Maoris go onto private lands and begin ploughing, and induce armed men with guns in their hands, and those guns in many instances at full cock to drive them off by violence, those acts will lead to hostilities whether they are so intended or not.
2: He conveniently forgot that the private land in question belonged to the Maori. But in passing the Bill, Parliament was only echoing the feelings of many. An extract from an editorial of a Taranaki paper in June 1879
4: says, Perhaps, all things considered, the present difficulty will be one of the greatest blessings ever New Zealand experienced, for without doubt it will be a war of extermination. The time has come in our minds when New Zealand must strike for freedom. And this means a death blow to the Maori race.
2: By now, more than 200 Pariaka Maoris had been arrested for fencing and sent to various prisons for the crime of attempting to save their crops. Even when they were tried, they got little justice from the courts, as Rusden says. Late in
1: 1880, it appears that some of the Maori arrested at Pariaka were tried their counsel raised an objection that the area within which arrests might be made was not defined in the West Coast Settlement Act. Thus questioning the validity of their arrests. The objection was overruled, and the judge sentenced the prisoners to two years' imprisonment with hard labour in Littleton.
2: They came from Taranaki.
1: And to find a surety of £50 pounds each... They had little money. ...to keep the peace for six months after the expiration of the sentence. The judge also told the interpreter to tell the prisoners that... Whether you will serve the full term of your sentences or not depends on the conduct of your countrymen whom you leave behind you.
2: This was reported in the New Zealand Herald, September 1880. It didn't end there. In September 1880, John Bryce wanted to march upon Tehuiti's settlement once again. But this time his colleagues did not agree with him, and in a fit of pique, he sent in his resignation. Later, in a speech to his constituents, he explained that...
7: Everything went on well until September last. I ought to have gone and seen to Whitty with such a force at my back. If he had resisted, I should have arrested him.
2: However, his actions were not universally approved of. For when he retired for the first time in January 1881, a newspaper commented...
4: Mr Bryce's retirement is a public benefit, of narrow views... Ignorant of the native history and insight into a native's character or customs, Mr Bryce, with the best intentions, was totally unfit for the responsible position of native minister.
2: But yet more skullduggery was afoot. Rusden recounts this story.
1: In September 1881, the governor, Sir Arthur Gordon, who was also high commissioner in the Pacific, sailed for Fiji. He had not been gone many days before Mr Rolleston, the native minister, had a vote for £100,000 for defence passed. A Maori member said afterwards that the vote was...
8: ...brought up suddenly, after most of the members had gone on board the steamers to depart for their homes.
1: The reason given for the defence vote was that some people had said that Tawiti had made a warlike speech, but the government had received official telegrams saying that the speech was not warlike. However, if Tawiti was not warlike... It was soon rumoured that the Ministry were. In October, Mr Bryce, who had left the Ministry in January, was invited to rejoin it in order to carry out what was called his native policy, that is, making a raid upon pariyaka Meanwhile, the Governor's private secretary, Mr Murray, had, with the full knowledge of the Ministry, written to Sir Arthur Gordon to tell him of the increase of the armed constabulary force that settlers were being enrolled and armed, that a vote for £100,000 had been taken, and that war with the Maoris was regarded as almost inevitable. On the morning of October the 19th, the Prime Minister talked with Mr Murray, who told him that the Governor had cabled him and might be looked for at any moment. That this information quickened the movements of the government cannot be demonstrated but they could hardly have been quicker or more irregular than they were. At half past five in the afternoon, Mr Murray received a note from Sir James Prendergast, the administrator, asking him to summon a meeting of the Executive Council for eight o'clock the same evening.
9: I sent out the summons as directed, and then went to see Sir James Prendergast to ask what the business was for which the Council was to meet. He told me, as a secret, that Mr Bryce was to be appointed a member of the Executive Council, I told him that I had heard rumours of a proclamation of war. The Administrator replied that this was all nonsense. I said that I suppose before any act of hostilities could be undertaken, the consent of the Governor or Administrator must be obtained. Sir James Prendergast said, Not at all. It is a matter for which the whole responsibility rests with the Ministers.
1: The Nocturnal Council was held the Prime Minister, Mr Hall, presented a statement blaming Tewiti, who only desired to be left in peace, and Prendergast signed a proclamation denouncing Tewiti. That night, the proclamation of war, as some called it, was printed and given to the newspapers. But something else was done at night by Sir James Prendergast and his advisers. Mr Rolleston signed the proclamation, but immediately resigned as native minister. Mr. Bryce was then appointed native minister, and it was arranged that he should start at daylight with the proclamation signed by Rolleston and by Prendergast. And where, meanwhile, was the Queen's representative? While the secret conclave was busy before their proclamation was hastily issued, the HMS Emerald, with the governor on board, was at anchor in the harbour of Wellington. He did not land that night. And when he went on shore in the morning, the new native minister was on his way to Parihaka.
2: In other words, the ministry had pulled a fast one on the governor, knowing that Sir Arthur Gordon would have been unlikely to sign the proclamation against Tehuiti. So they wanted it signed and in action before he returned. The administrator, Prendergast, was very happy to do this.
1: It was rumoured that there was a difference between the governor and his advisers, and a Wellington newspaper, opposed to what it called pandering to Maori idiosyncrasies, said, the governor will interfere at his peril. Such idiosyncrasies had made the Wellington Independent say in 1868, No mercy should be shown.
4: No prisoner should be taken. Let a price be put upon the head of every rebel, and let them be slain without scruple wherever the opportunity is afforded. We must smite and spare not. We must treat them as a species of savage
1: beasts which must be exterminated to render the colonization of New Zealand possible. Between such an idiosyncrasy and the feelings of honourable Englishmen, there was necessarily a wide gulf.
2: Rusden is expressing the conflict between the liberal ideas held by people like Sir George Grey and Sir Robert Stout and the pragmatic exploitative views of the settlers expressed through the actions of John Bryce. Sir Robert Stout wrote to the newspapers.
9: I suppose, amidst the general rejoicings at the prospect of a Maori war, it is useless for anyone to raise his voice against the present native policy. I do so more as a protest than with any hope that any one colonist can ever aid in preventing the murder of the Maoris, on which it seems we, as a colony, are bent. I call it murder, for we know that the Maoris are, as compared with us, helpless, and I am not aware of anything they have done to make us commence hostilities. The race is dying, and if we are at all affected with the love of humanity, we should strive to preserve it, or make its dying moments as happy as possible. To this end, I think we ought to give Tafiti and his people a crown grant of the Pariaka block and allow them to live there unmolested. If they disturb settlers in other lands, why not treat them as we treat European disturbers of the peace? Bring them before our courts of justice for trial and punishment, Instead of thus acting, we have had the most unconstitutional acts passed, depriving them of liberty without trial. We are powerful, they are weak. And that is the only explanation the future historian will give of our conduct.
2: In fact, in spite of their smaller numbers, the population of Pariaca had been showing considerable success in defending themselves against the onslaughts made against them by their skilful use of the tactics of non-violent resistance. But their success was not to last. Rusden again takes up the story.
1: All that occurred when violent hands were laid upon Tawiti and his people need not be told here. But some of the events which caused the Maori to groan may be touched upon. Armed forces were collected under the native minister's orders. Tewiti nevertheless preached peace. I am still for peace. I will go into captivity
5: and the lions will dwell upon the land. Then there will be no more war. What does it matter? My kopapa is accomplished. Peace reigns. I am willing to become a sacrifice for my kopapa. O hard hearted people, I am here to be taken. Take me for the sins of the land. The future is mine, and little children will answer in the future. When questioned as to the author of peace, they will say Te and I will bless them.
1: On November the 4th, the native minister issued an order prohibiting civilians from being present with his army on the 5th. A few newspaper correspondents disregarded the order, and were with Tewiti early on that day. One of them wrote, Of the Taranaki contingent of the colonial forces, it was said with a frankness
4: that made the blood run cold that 20 men were sworn to shoot down the first Maori that chance placed it within their power to kill.
1: The army arrived. Tewiti sat unmoved with his people. Another correspondent wrote, Whatever he might direct would inevitably be done.
6: The whole assemblage sat with eyes fixed on Tewiti. His slightest variation of countenance was reflected in the faces of all, and any words that he addressed to those close to him were whispered from one to another till they reached the uttermost
5: circle of the densely packed meeting. Tewiti said, Even if the bayonet be put to your breasts, do not resist.
1: The riot act was read. An officer told his men, If any Maori flashes a tomahawk, shoot him down instantly. Tewiti said to his people,
5: Be of good heart and patient. Be steadfast in all that is peaceful.
2: The crowd remained calm. No hand was raised against Bryce and his men as they arrested Tewiti, who was then imprisoned without trial, but not without comment. The Littleton Times of the 8th of November said,
4: The native minister organises a demonstration against a native village and he contrives to attain to a pinnacle of absurdity which no one has even imagined in dreams. After carefully collecting a huge force of soldiery from all parts of the colony, he has to read the riot act to a peaceful population calmly seated in their own marketplace. Everyone is aware of the discreditable trick which the ministers played off upon the governor, taking advantage of his absence to hurry out a most ill-advised proclamation.
2: And the next day it had more to say.
4: It is truly pitiable to see the Maoris calmly and patiently looking on while their homes are being rifled. The feeling of sympathy for Te and his followers is extending, while Mr Bryce is going proportionately down in the scale of popularity.
2: The prisoners taken at Parihaka were subject to a procedure that can only be called sleight of hand.
1: Before the time arrived for the trial of Tewiti and Toho, a trial which would have taken place at New Plymouth, the Attorney-General moved them from Taranaki to the Middle Island, where their trial could not be heard for some time. However, the removal was commented upon by public men. Robert Stout wrote... The removal has been
9: made for no other purpose than to stave off the trial till after the meeting of Parliament, to allow, if necessary, one of those disgraces to New Zealand legislation, a special act to be passed.
2: When Parliament assembled in May 1882, two more bills about Pariaca were introduced. The first, an indemnity bill, was designed to absolve from blame all those who took part in the action against the people and their property. It reads...
4: Whereas large numbers of Aboriginal natives frequently assembled at Parehaka in the provincial district of Taranaki, and thereby produced undue excitement, breaches of the law, and disturbances of the public peace, and whereas with the object of preventing such meetings and preserving the peace, certain measures were adopted by the Government of New Zealand and carried out under their authority, some of which may have been in excess of legal powers, It is expedient that the person's actions therein should be indemnified, be it therefore enacted.
2: This is a glaring misstatement of what really happened. The government of the day put no evidence before Parliament to prove that the fault lay with Tehuiti and his people. The Act goes on.
4: Every person whosoever who shall at any time before the passing of this Act have acted under the authority of the Government of New Zealand... Committing to prison of any person doing or being concerned in, or suspected of doing or being concerned in any of the acts, matters, or things following. Assembling or holding meeting at Parihaka. Attending any such meeting and refusing or neglecting to disperse. And any person who shall have damaged or destroyed any real or personal property or searched for, seized or taken possession of the same, shall be and is hereby freed, acquitted, released, indemnified against all actions, suits, prosecutions, liabilities and proceedings whatsoever. The people
2: of Pariaca lost all rights to assemble and had no right to claim damages in any way for any loss of their property through the Pariaca raid. What is more, these people, like those arrested for ploughing, could be imprisoned without trial. All this without any evidence being put before Parliament. At the same time, the Government introduced a West Coast Peace Preservation Bill, which enabled them to keep Te and Tohu in prison without trial, at the Minister's pleasure. Once again there was vehement protest. One member, Mr Hutchinson, said...
9: It appears to me that when the Attorney-General obtained leave to change the venue from New Plymouth to Christchurch, he must have known there was no intention to try to fit in Tohu, and the Supreme Court was consequently made a mere machine to carry out the purposes of the government. I am speaking now in the presence of gentlemen of the legal profession, and I venture to say that if the English Attorney-General had done the same thing before any of the courts of judicature in England, he would have stood the chance of being struck off the rolls.
8: Tefero added, I see no reason why the government should have proceeded to Pariaka and broken down Ngā fare and rooted up the crops. I see that the government intend to bring down a bill to indemnify the action in having imprisoned Tehuiti and Tōu. And if Tehuiti and Tōu have not been arrested legally, why not release them at once? Why should you bring down a bill to indemnify the action of the government for having so arrested them.
2: The second bill, the West Coast Peace Preservation Act, 1882, added to the draconian measures of the Indemnity Bill.
1: As introduced, the bill enabled any justice of the peace to order any assembled Maoris exceeding 20 in number to disperse. On their failure to disperse, they were deemed guilty of an offence any justice of the peace might sentence such offenders to all or any of the punishments following. A fine not exceeding 50 pounds, imprisonment with or without hard labour not exceeding 12 months, the finding of sufficient sureties for good behaviour. After a long statement to justify the policy of the government in Taranaki, Bryce added, Tuiti and Tū are now arraigned on a charge of sedition.
2: Once again the house erupted. Bracken... De la Tour, Tafai, Moss, Montgomery, Deferro, and Turnbull all speaking out against the bill.
3: It's a monstrous thing to hold the chiefs in custody at will without trial. Are we living in a free British colony or under some petty local despot? Will the people of New Zealand allow any man, even though he holds the rank of native minister, to ride roughshod over the constitution? Will they allow any man, even though he be a minister of the crown? to suspend trial by jury if it so pleases him? The Treaty of Waitangi imparted to the Maoris the rights and privileges of British subjects. Well, sir, if they are entitled to the rights and privileges of British subjects, they are entitled to the right of trial by jury. I stand here to protest, although I may be the only one in the House who does so, against this un-English proceeding on the part of the Ministry.
6: It is no wonder indeed that Tiwiti is not brought to trial, for the government are afraid to leave the issue to our courts. I say it is true, and the commissioners, Sir William Fox and Sir Francis Dillon Bell, say the same, that Tiwiti was actuated by the hope of inducing some government to face the position and share the blanket with him and his people. Then came our act authorising arrest and detention without trial And so sure as day follows night, so soon as we began that policy of wrong, retribution followed. Step by step in this quagmire of wrongdoing, we are getting deeper and deeper. And now think, by incarcerating two people in a jail at Christchurch, that we can appease these people without cost, and wait till they die out. And so, in our greed for land, can obtain these lands ourselves. I say, sir, that as the legislature of this country, we shall suffer shame and stain our history if we do any such thing without the fullest inquiry.
8: Tough, I said. Why should the bill be passed in order that Tefiti may not be tried? If he's not to be tried now, why was he taken prisoner and confined in jail? I think this bill is not framed that Te Fiti may not be tried, but is brought forward to cover the fault of the government. I think the government of New Zealand have acted illegally, they should have acted according to law, but in this case they have acted apart from the law and have now come to make their actions legal. If Te Fiti had been of the English race, you would soon have found out a means to get the government into trouble. But as he is a native, you act in quite a different manner. I
3: think, for their own honour, the government should seek inquiry by a trial. Think of the precedent we are establishing. Where will be the liberty of the subjects if we pass a law like this?
8: These thousands of troops were sent up there under arms, amidst the weak and unoffending women and children. The troops then burnt their houses and rooted up their crops. When Tefiti and Tohu were being arrested, they told the people to remain in peace during their absence and not make any disturbances. The people have obeyed. I think Tefiti is the best friend of the government. Although he is called a fanatic, he's told his people not to take up arms but to leave wrath in the hands of God. If Tefiti had told them they were to slay, they would have slain. The government should be careful to act rightly for the Treaty of Waitangi states that they should protect the Māori and act fairly towards them. But the government has not done so. I know that they are strong enough to carry this measure, but I will vote against it.
6: Indeed, every desire appears to have been manifested to irritate the natives in every possible way. No reserves of their fisheries were made. No reserves of their places of cultivation. No reserves of their burial grounds. Everything that could insult and annoy the natives was done and allowed to be done. Acts of grosser cruelty have never before been committed than those which were done to the Maoris with respect to their places of burial. Those places so much endeared to them have not been secured, and nothing could be calculated to give the Maoris greater offence. In fact, the government has goaded them to rebellion. The bill asks this house, if I may judge from the language of the native minister in introducing it, to constitute ourselves a court in the first place. Well, I say that is most unjust, and I object to it. We are not to have an opportunity of hearing evidence, but we are to try, Tewiti. I object myself to be one of a court to try these men, unless we have before us the fullest evidence on the matter.
1: One of the friends of the ministry, Captain Mackenzie, bluntly described the position thus. I think we must all admit that if the foundation of a building is laid in
9: injustice, that building will have to stand for all time upon a basis of injustice. I think the acquisition of land by the European population in this country has been in a great measure based on injustice. But notwithstanding that, I say it is now impossible for us to hark back The talk of justice and law now is, in my opinion, simple bunkum. I do not see what advantages to be gained by such talk. It simply takes up our time to no purpose.
1: Colonel Trimble, who supported the bill, said,
3: I have heard a great deal about Magna Carta and the Bill of Rights and all that. That may be very good, but Magna Carta and the Bill of Rights imply something more than mere privilege. They imply duty also. I say the same about this Treaty of Waitangi, which I hope in future will be relegated to the waste paper basket, which is about the only place it ought to be seen in. Is the capture of
8: Te treating them like a subject of Her Majesty? I do not think that the government have acted up to this particular provision of the treaty, that the same privileges will be conferred upon the Maori as those conferred upon British subjects. Is it fair that the wrong should be committed first? and legalized
1: afterwards. As well as defending the bill to keep Tawiti a prisoner, the native minister also defended the contemplated reduction of the reserve at Parihaka. The commissioners had recommended a reserve of 25,000 acres there. Mr Bryce said,
7: It is not the intention of the government to allow a bill to be passed in this house which shall give to these Maoris those reserves, whether they behave themselves or not.
2: Yet the Governor, in a dispatch of the 3rd of December, 1881, had told Lord Kimberley...
4: The Parihaka lands themselves are in a portion of the confiscated territory in which all white settlement was forbidden by government, while natives who had left the district on account of their participation in the war were encouraged to return to it. Had I therefore been in the colony, I should have experienced great difficulty in complying with the recommendation to sign a proclamation which appears to me to embody an injudicious policy, to contain disputable statements, and to announce an inequitable intention. In the upper house, the Attorney General did not scruple to say that the government feels that if Tifiti and Tohu were tried and convicted reasonably, the sentence would be a short one and that if they were acquitted, they would return to Parihaka. In removing the trial from New Plymouth to Christchurch, one of the objects of the government was to put off the trial until after the meeting of the
1: General Assembly. Thus, the delay of justice and its final denial were attributed not to any legal obstacles, but to the policy of the government. Whittaker said, Uh, The trial would not have answered our purpose.
4: If they were convicted, the sentence would probably be short. And if they were acquitted, our object would be defeated entirely. Therefore, it was that their trial was put off legally. It was done according to the law, until the General
1: Assembly had considered the matter. Both bills were passed in the Lower House on June the ninth, 1882. To the very last, the policy of the Ministry if the commission of acts of violence and their concealment from public scrutiny can be dignified with the name of policy, seems to have been to prevent judicial or constitutional inquiry until it was too late to arrest wrongdoing. In the Upper House, the Indemnity Bill was passed without difficulty, but more than one member objected to the allegations in the Bill for denying a trial to Tewiti and Tohu. Mr Mantell... Recorded a formal protest against the bill, and so did Captain Fraser, who spoke thus 1. It is repugnant to the English statute
6: law, and deprives British subjects of the privileges granted them by the Habeas Corpus Act. 2. It declares men guilty of sedition without trial, and without any evidence of their guilt produced before Parliament. 3. It declares men guilty who have not been allowed to be heard in their defence before Parliament. Four. It will tend to create disaffection amongst the Maoris and foment bitterness and strife amongst the colonists. Five. It is punishing Maoris who, if guilty, would be punished by the judicial tribunals of the colony. Six. There is no reason for suspecting that if any evidence could be produced
1: against Te Witi and Tohu before the Supreme Court, a jury would not convict them. The West Coast Peace Preservation Act, 1882, enabled the Governor in Council to deny a trial to hold Te Witi and Tohu in prison, to release them and to re-arrest and imprison them at pleasure in defiance of Magna Carta, Habeas Corpus Act, or any other safeguard of the liberties of the subjects of the Queen. Tewiti and Tohu were accordingly, with more or less restraint, kept as prisoners in the Middle Island. They were so calm in their manner that it would have been difficult to find excuse for harshness in dealing with them. For so long ago as 1880, when armed men were sent into the district by the native minister, Tewiti said, I want not war,
5: but they do. The flashes of their guns have singed our eyelashes, and yet they say they do not want war. What say they for me? That I am a fanatic, a fool, and a madman. But I am none of these things. The land is yours, but that which I have lately seen, the armed swarm which has poured upon it, is enough to distract my brain.
2: over a hundred years ago. But it's not just empty history waiting to be forgotten. It matters as much today as it did then. For it's incidents such as these that have set the scene for race relations in New Zealand. We inherit the society our ancestors made. The legacy of their thoughts and actions is ours today. We can't change the past. But if we want to, we can change the future. Aurere Parihaka was written and narrated by
0: Adrian Smith, and the book that it referred to frequently was Aurere Tanga, Groans of the Māori, by the historian George Rusden, published in 1888.